You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Parameswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, so for our listeners, uh, as we tape this podcast, uh, we are looking at the signing of an agreement between the United States and the Taliban that could potentially be the key to ending over 18 years of war in Afghanistan since uh, the December 2001 invasion by the United States. Um, this deal has been some time coming now. Uh, so we're, we're taping this podcast on Friday, February 28th, and the two sides are supposed to meet for a leap day signing on uh Saturday the 29th in Doha, Qatar, where the Taliban has been based for a while and uh, talks have been happening between the two sides. So the the deal on the table uh, right now is basically the culmination of a long process that began going back to really September 2018 uh, after the um, unveiling of the U.S. strategy for Afghanistan. Uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, the U.S. special representative, had worked on negotiations with the Taliban political commission for a long time. Uh, last September, uh, September 2019, um, right before a deal might have materialized at Camp David in the United States, um, President D Donald Trump in the United States uh, called off talks with the Taliban after a U.S. soldier was killed. Uh, and that led to a long period of uncertainty. But in the last few weeks, we've seen things coalesce now again to a political process. And most significantly, the two sides have been successfully, uh, you know, fingers crossed, we have a few more hours left before the signing takes place but have successfully pulled off a secession of hostilities. There have been some attacks in Afghanistan, including in Kabul, uh, in the past few days, but the Taliban has not claimed responsibility for those attacks. So all signs point to a signing of this agreement. And for listeners who haven't been following this, the basic contour of the agreement pertains to this. So the United States, after the signing, will reduce troops in Afghanistan with about a three, three to 4,000 troop reduction from about the current levels, which are at around 12,000 to around 8,600, which is what the Trump administration uh, was at when it entered office in 2017. And in exchange for that, the Taliban will, uh, I think the, the key to this is really going back to the reason the U.S. invaded Taliban in the first place in 2001, which is Afghan soil being used by terrorist groups like al-Qaeda uh, to conduct attacks against the United States. Uh, in 2001, of course, that was the September 11th, 20, um, uh, September 11, 2001 attacks against New York City. Um, but the Taliban will make a, co a commitment to not allow their territory or Afghan territory to be used by such groups. And after that, they will begin, and this is the really tricky part, begin a process of talking to the Afghan, the U.S.-backed Afghan civilian government for a, bar, a broader political transition in Afghanistan that will bring the Taliban into the fold to participate politically. And that's where things like get really dicey. Uh, so that's just a little bit of an overview. But there's a lot more to talk about here, Prashant. I mean, um, you know, mm -hmm. tomorrow we do see the signing, and then what happens after that, I think, is going to be really unclear. So... Perhaps a good place to start is to talk about uh, really the prospects of containing the violence uh, between not only the, the Taliban and U.S. forces after this deal is signed, but also between the Taliban and the Afghan government. There's a real issue there. Um, a lot of the specifics about how the two sides are going to come together and talk are still very unclear. So what are you um, watching for in the uh, in the days and weeks that will follow this uh, leap day signing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you kind of summed up the significance about it pretty well and also some of the uncertainties which is you know at least on two major fronts we'll still be waiting to hear what what actually this will mean and what uh effects and implications this will have so on the one hand it's the the actual events and developments on the ground so even 
uh, previous to this with respect to the negotiations, given the dynamics that we've seen in the past two years, uh, folks have been really looking and seeing, you know, whether it's, you know, U.S. forces being killed or civilians being killed, whether anything could kind of scupper the agreement or or actually derail it. But then I think the second big question, which you alluded to, is, you know, really what are the agreements uh, that the Afghans can reach among themselves, right? So we've had a dynamic where we're not only dealing with the Taliban and the Afghan government, but, you know, following the Afghan elections that have happened earlier this year, disagreements uh, even about, you know, who has won um, that continue to be uh, playing out and, and divisions in the leadership more generally. So without those two things uh, actually happening, we really won't have a, a clear idea about what the significance of this agreement is. And then, of course, there's all these other factors and variables that we've talked about previously on the podcast before with respect to Afghanistan, whether it's you know, the U.S. election here that's happening in November and whether we have a second Trump administration or a different administration and the role of, of various external actors as well that might complicate dynamics there. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the um, the political challenges within the Afghan government, because I think that's a really significant factor here. Uh, so September t uh, 2019, I talked a little bit about the, of course, the um, complete disappearance of the prospective deal that was meant to close with the mm -hmm. Taliban at Camp David. But that month also saw Afghanistan uh, host presidential elections. Um, the turnout was quite low, but the results were finally announced uh, earlier this month uh, with um, the finding being that Ashraf Ghani, the incumbent president, uh, being narrowly reelected. He won a little bit over 50 percent of the vote. Um, but the result was contested by Abdullah Abdullah, who was the chief executive officer in the national unity government. Uh, now, for listeners, there is, um, I think, you know, we have to go back to 2014 to really understand the origins of the current uh, disagreements between Abdullah and Ghani. So in 2014, there was also a contested election in Afghanistan, and the Obama administration had to intervene very directly. Uh, Secretary of, then Secretary of State John Kerry flew to Afghanistan and brokered effectively a unity government between Ghani and Abdullah. And that unity, that unity government was never particularly as effective as it could have been because the two the two sides did have their own camps um, and their own sort of networks of loyalty and patronage within the government and outside of the government, um, which led to a variety of um, difficulties in, in efficiently governing the country. And now we see a very similar process playing out with Abdullah Abdullah making his own announcements for cabinet members, uh, really kind of um, looking to fracture the legitimacy of the election itself. And one of the questions here is that the Trump administration is so focused right now on closing this deal with the Taliban that it seems like we're not going to see the kind of intervention we saw in 2014. Uh, it just doesn't seem like it's a priority right now mm -hmm. for the administration. There are efforts to get the Afghan government to coalesce around Ghani, given that he did apparently win more of the vote, according to the Independent Election Commission of Afghanistan. But this, I think, sets up a major problem for what happens after after this Leap Day deal. Uh, because if the Afghan government is internally not stable enough, uh, it's it's difficult to see how these talks with the Taliban are actually going to begin. So I don't mm -hmm. I don't really see a clear answer to uh, how, how this is going to play out between Ghani and Abdullah right now. Uh, do you see anything differently? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is this sort of captures the, the dynamic that that we see, which is, you know, even as we have this sort of, uh, you know, the talk of the, the peace deal, the signing going on, there's really a lot of anxiety about uh, the extremes of what could happen, whether it's, you know, political disagreements that might actually undermine the deal, 
or just a, a full out, you know, descent into, you know, civil war, infighting and anxieties about the Taliban and how that affects the broader sort of regional balance of power. And I think the the, the sort of nervousness that you sense is that um, that the on the part of the United States, there is an incentive for the Trump administration and President Trump himself has said this, uh, that, you know, he always has had a desire for the United States to withdraw and reduce its presence from Afghanistan eventually. Um, and that only adds to the anxiety, I think, uh, among some folks in the region. And, you know, even if you just take a view of Afghan history itself, that you know, if the United States is too eager and, and, and is too quick about, uh, you know, trying to draw down its presence and affect regional dynamics and the situation in Afghanistan, even when the domestic political dynamics are so fragile, um, you know, that might be a complicating factor. I think we've already seen, you know, public reporting even about uh, Zalmay Khalizad and how he's had to sort of say, you know, sort of mention to the Afghans, hey, listen, put your differences aside. We need this deal to come through, um, which is fine if you're trying to get the deal. But if you're actually looking for this to stick and, and be sustainable, that's going to be an issue. Yeah, the you know, there's there's just so many ways that I can imagine things going wrong uh, after the signing. Another another factor, and this has, uh, of course, been an issue during this uh, ongoing reduction in hostilities uh, this week. Um, but another issue is what if we do see attacks on U.S. forces by Taliban mm -hmm. fighters, right? So one of the one of the problems that's uh, I think been apparent since the death of Mullah Omar, the original leader of the Taliban, um, has been the fracturing of the organization itself. The Taliban's ability to command and control all of its forces or all of the fighters who pledge allegiance to the Taliban leadership um, has been, I think, strained, right? So if there is a major attack. And this is what happened in September. Uh, there was an attack that killed a, um, a U.S. soldier, uh, which ultimately led to Trump calling off the Camp David process uh, that was supposed to culminate in a deal back then. So if there is a signing and something like that happens, it's it's not un unimaginable that Trump will react to that incredibly poorly and it might derail everything. I think a factor maybe pulling against that is that, you know, we are in an election year in the United States. And... I don't think it's really an exaggeration to say that if this deal does end up leading to a complete withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, potentially by, let's say, October, uh, mm -hmm. you know, just days before the election, that could manifest in what would be the Trump administration's most significant foreign policy accomplishment in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, pulling troops out of Afghanistan after 18 years of war is something that um, certainly Barack Obama tried to do. Um, but if Trump is the president that actually pulls this off, that's obviously going to be incredibly significant. And of course, you know, with uh, everything happening in the financial markets and the economy not looking so hot, it might be more pertinent than ever for Trump to get this win in Afghanistan. So it might be the case that even if we do see a resumption of violence, um, potentially in the summer, as the summer months heat up, violence in Afghanistan tends to spike Um but even even so, the Trump administration might be politically motivated to make sure that this deal is, quote, successful by by whatever metrics they'll be measuring for. Um, you know, another another issue um, maybe that's worth talking about is, you know, something that's left unsaid in this entire process of the negotiations with the Taliban is the kind of political uh, future that Afghanistan is looking at. Right. I mean, you still. I mean, first of all, even though, uh, so, so, you know, let's imagine that Ghani and Abdullah um, managed to reconcile their differences either with a 2014 style unity government arrangement or simply some other sort of um, reconciliation, you know, that might lead to Ghani simply 
um, taking over as president um, without Abdullah's involvement. That seems hard to imagine right now, though. But let's say that happens and negotiations do begin between the Taliban and the Afghan government, right? So this is several steps down the line and making several generous mm-hmm. assumptions about the state of stability. There are still questions about what kind of country Afghanistan will ultimately be, right? I mean, when you have the Taliban becoming involved in national politics, things like human rights, women's rights, women's political participation, um, the very nature of whether the country will be an Islamic republic or an Islamic emirate like the Taliban had in the 1990s, many of these questions will have to be addressed. And this right now doesn't seem to be something that the U.S. is particularly concerned with. The American concern is to reduce violence, lead to a withdrawal of U.S. forces. But that, I think, is going to be something that certainly um, regional players in in Asia, including, let's say, countries like China, Russia, Iran, Pakistan, India, uh, many of these countries uh, surrounding Afghanistan who increasingly have stakes in what happens after the U.S. withdrawal are going to be paying a lot more attention to. Uh, certainly, it's going to be a very... You know, if this does open a new a new era of uh, geopolitics in Central Asia and South Asia, that's something that many of these capitals are going to be watching for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the the point there about um, you know broader issues and uh, what peace looks like in Afghanistan uh, and the management of conflict, you know, is an important point. I think you know there have been some inroads that have been made on issues like women's rights, uh, minorities, and and the like uh, over the past two decades, but. This all risks being undermined um, under the uh, sort of Taliban-led government, or if we see Afghanistan, you know, sort of decay, decay into division and, and war. Um, and those are the very issues that, I mean, to your point earlier that you made at the outset, uh, you know, the real negotiations and, and deal will be have to be made between the Afghans themselves. Um, and that is essentially where the challenge lies. So in some ways, you know, the, the, the sort of prelude to an agreement uh, that is being signed is only the beginning of a very sort of longer term process by which you know the domestic situation in Afghanistan is actually being affected. And as you correctly pointed out, this is also going to affect how regional players are actually factoring into the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, another another thing for the U.S. is how do you get the Taliban to actually uphold their commitment to peace in the long term? Mm-hmm. Right. What is to say? that the Taliban play ball, uh, U.S. troops begin withdrawing rapidly, first down to 8,600 and then even further by uh, the U.S. presidential elections. And then if the Taliban renege and simply end talks with the Afghan government, push back on the deal entirely, let's say they don't actually break the assurance to the United States on allowing terrorist groups to use Afghan soil, that is, I think, a very difficult problem. And I think one of the ways to reassure that, I think there's a couple answers to that, right? Like the U.S. could be clear about the fact that if the Taliban do renege on a uh, on participating in a political process with the Afghan government in good faith then the US would again use military force to you know let's say overthrow a Taliban regime if it did come to that i don't think the trump administration is going to make an assurance like that um public i mean especially before the election right i mean the US uh, the US public doesn't want the united states to withdraw from afghanistan while making threats to the Taliban with red lines that would, again, lead to an invasion of Afghanistan. Another solution could perhaps be the U.S. um, brokering some kind of regional process by which, let's say, you know, the governments of Pakistan, China, Russia, India, potentially Iran, if the U.S. can, you know, stomach that right now, all come together and state that they would like to see this deal last and they would like to see a political process between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Um, That sort of an assurance could, again, create enough space and enough backing for the process itself. Uh, But unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen, given the pace at which things are happening right now uh, with the with the U.S. side really just pushing to get uh, to get troops out as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that is really the 
a major concern because if you do have uh, the sense that a U.S. administration was actually very committed to finding the sort of regional diplomatic solution, and this was also something that, you know, I think there were some who were advocating this position during the Obama administration as well, that diplomatic energy needed to be invested. Um, but those individuals claimed the same thing that is sort of happening now, which is essentially there isn't that level of commitment and energy to a wider diplomatic process. Essentially, the, the question really boils down to a narrow one of, you know, how can we withdraw the U.S. presence? How can we sort of, you know, kind of paper over the cracks and find a way to leave, um, which isn't historically, you know, isn't a very sustainable way to actually sustain this because the the the, the fear and, and the scenario that, you know, one of the scenarios, at least, that is likely to come to pass is a scenario where Afghanistan descends into violence and the United States would, would actually have to intervene or or there would be a vacuum, essentially, and the United States would, you know, would be left kind of wanting uh, relative to that earlier presence. Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, the only thing to do right now is to wait and see what happens. I mean, uh, there'll be there'll be certainly, I think, um, enough early indicators of how, how successful this process is like to be in March and April. And uh, mm -hmm. certainly, uh, I'm sure, you know, this won't be the last that we're talking about Afghanistan on the podcast. But I think we'll leave it there. A little bit of a shorter episode today. Uh, but yeah, by the time listeners are uh, listening to this podcast, the deal will have been signed in Doha, Qatar on uh, Saturday, February 29th. Uh, you know, I, I made a joke on Twitter that uh, the U.S. doesn't have a great record of signing significant agreements on leap days. And uh, <laughs> in, in 2012, you had the leap day agreement with North Korea, which... Mm -hmm. uh, was again signed on February 29th and fell apart by uh, April. So um, hopefully the Taliban Leap Day deal goes a little bit better. Um, but yeah, we'll certainly be back to uh, take stock of how things are going in Afghanistan. But Prashant, it's good to be back with you. Thanks for uh, joining me on the show. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. So for listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber or a listener for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, you can do that on either iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. It really helps the show and helps other people find the show. So we really do appreciate that. This week actually does mark the six-year anniversary of the Asia Geopolitics podcast. It's hard to believe that we've been going for that long, but really wanted to thank uh, all of you who've been loyal subscribers. It's always a pleasure to uh, run into loyal listeners of the podcast uh, any, you know, anywhere in the world, from Europe to Asia, um, when I travel. So I really hope uh, that you'll continue listening to the show. And as always, if you have suggestions for me and Prashant for how we could improve the show or topics you'd like to hear us cover, just send either of us a note. We're very happy to take that into consideration. And finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.